0: Good morning, church. This morning, we're beginning a new series entitled uh, Right Side Up. It's going to be a journey over the next eight weeks through the Beatitudes. And if you're new to Scripture, I want to let you know we are so glad you're here because you're going to help us read in more faithful ways these words that are so backwards to our world. And sometimes in in church, we get so used to hearing words like this that, that we lose our perspective. And so I want to invite you to to look again at these words, whether it's the first time you're hearing them or whether you've heard these a hundred times. This is the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll spend our time this morning. And you notice uh, my friend Heather is going to be painting. Heather Hodges is a wonderful minister and a friend of mine and uh, has a a ministry of, of artistry that I think will be a blessing today. So the hope is that I'm going to preach and she's going to paint and there will be some point in the middle of all this that comes together, hopefully engaging all parts of our brains that sometimes we don't get to. Let's pray as we open up uh, our our time in the Word this morning. Father, I I thank you so much for your Word, uh, for the gifts that you give to us, and one of those is Scripture. And this morning, I pray that these words that many of us have memorized, many of us have committed to memory these words, and yet sometimes we forget the foreignness, God, the, the strangeness of these words. So God, would you reorient us again to these words again? We thank you, God, for your spirit that uh, gives life and gives light to our eyes, God. And we pray again for encouragement, for challenge, and for life change, God, as we leave these doors. We've got to flip our perspective again to see the world as you see it. In the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. I want to begin reading in verse 1. These, this is the story, that's uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon probably in the history of the world. the prophets who were before you. Now the Beatitudes are one of those sections of Scripture that we tend to look at uh, piece by piece, verse by verse, and kind of forget the context in which they come. So this morning I want to set that context because one of the things i found in my reading of Scripture is I'm a much more faithful reader reader of Scripture when I look at the context around words rather than just sometimes those bumper sticker sayings that we talk about that show up. And, And this is one of those statements that I want to invite you to look at the context So turn, if you would, with me, not just to Matthew 5, but actually to the verses that precede that in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, uh, Jesus has has been born, of course. He started his ministry. In chapter 4, it talks about the temptation stories in the wilderness. And then Jesus starts his ministry. He calls his disciples to follow him, and he begins his ministry of preaching and teaching. So I want to pick up in Matthew chapter 4, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And if you're paying attention to chapter 4 there, there's several things we come to see. One is that uh, there's a message that Jesus teaches about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God that he proclaims throughout his ministry. And sometimes we haven't focused enough on the importance of the kingdom message that Jesus brings. He also begins to heal people. He heals people of sickness. He he heals the, the, the blind. He he actually casts out demons out of people. It's an amazing scene of God bringing healing to these people who need it. And the crowds begin to gather. You can imagine that's the way it would work, right? If, if all of a sudden this person comes and brings healing to all these people, that would gather a crowd. And that's exactly what happens in Matthew chapter 4. And following this scene, he goes up on a mountainside. And I want you to hear this in context because the very people he's healed seem to be the very people who were part of the crowds that followed Jesus up This mountain, I want you to imagine yourself. You've come in and you're lame or you're blind or paralyzed or there's been a demon possession of some sort and you're released and relieved of those things. Imagine with me how closely you would pay attention to the words that are about to come from the person who's healed you. I I just have to imagine if I could start my sermons that way, you would listen even closer than you already do, right? What is this guy going to say? What words of healing does he have? Because he's already shown healing in my life. And I think this is really important for us to get, because Jesus has an order to the way he does his ministry. First, Jesus demonstrates the kingdom of God, and then he proclaims the kingdom of God. You get that difference? Chapter 4, he proclaims, he, or he, he demonstrates, he heals people. He shows them what God's future is going to look like. He, he reveals to them a, a healed creation, bodies restored. This is God's future. He puts on display, he demonstrates that. And then he proclaims the good news in chapter 5. And I tend to get that backwards. I don't know about you. I, I tend to proclaim the kingdom without always coming and demonstrating that in the lives of the people I'm sharing it with. But Jesus gets this order right. Words don't mean nearly as much as the actions. People don't know, care how much you know until they know how much you care. And these people have been cared for, and they're ready to hear the words that come in chapter 5. And so hear again these words from Matthew 5, verse 3. This beatitude we'll focus on this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over that phrase, the poor in spirit. Foreign spirit's a loaded term. There's lots of connotations that we can bring from that. But a huge part of Jesus' ministry, he launches in in the gospel of Luke by saying that he's come to proclaim good news to the poor. It's his first sermon in Nazareth that he preaches is this is why I've come. And he's quoting from Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the promise about one who would come, who would do exactly that. And so uh, he's done this. He's pronounce this good news on the poor. And he's doing this again in Matthew chapter 5, isn't he? He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And this, there's a connotation, there's a, there's a background to this term poor in spirit that Jesus is drawing off of. It comes from a Hebrew word that actually is the word tied into that Isaiah passage that Jesus sees his ministry through. And it's the word anawim. Anawim is a Hebrew word that can mean the poor or the pious poor. It can mean the pathetic, the pitiful the worthless. Now that's not exactly what I read when I hear Matthew 5.3. I've read this so many times I don't necessarily go to that place, but this is a term that has its background that Jesus is speaking into. It's a powerful term. In fact, there's several ways I could bring this alive today to talk about who the poor in spirit are, the anawim that Jesus is really talking about. Uh, one of those has to do with Israel's past. Israel went into a time of exile. They went into a time where Babylon and Assyria took them over and took captive slaves who, who, who went to Babylon and Assyria as a result of their sin. <clears throat> now the situation was this, the, the, ca- the, the captors, the people who had won, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, they come in and they take people away from their land in Israel and they take them to Babylon and Assyria as slaves there's a catch to all this because the Babylonians and Assyrians only want to take a certain kind of person. They take people who are useful for their ends. They take the powerful. They take those with with, with strong hands. They take those whose backs can take the work that they're going to be doing when they go as slaves to this new land. But there's a group of people who are left behind in Israel during this exile. And the Anawim are not the people who have the poor misfortune of being taken into exile. The Anawim are the people who get left behind in Israel because they're not even useful enough to be taken away. Now, you've never been offended like you've been offended if you're in that case when, when they say, we're going to take everyone useful and then you're the one who gets left behind. That's Anawim. Anawim's not the slaves. Anawim's those who aren't even worthy to be slaves. And in Jesus' day, they were Anawim as well. Let's think about these people that Jesus healed, those who were lame and demon-possessed. You see, in that day and age, if you had a sickness that was debilitating in that way, there were more consequences than just the handicap you faced. There was, of course, the the situation itself. If you were blind, you had to struggle to get around just like you would today, maybe fewer resources in that day. But think about this situation because it's more than that. In that In that context, there was also economic hardship that came along with it. You see this throughout the Gospels. There are people that are begging at the poolside. There are people that are laying to the side. They demanded people to show pity on them. That was the only way they were going to get by. There was no system to support them through a government that was going to take care of their needs at all. It was only the charity of people. And so they had to continue to beg. There were economic consequences. But in a greater way than even today, I believe there were social consequences that went along with this. Because people saw in that day and age that if you were to sin or if you, I'm sorry, if you had something wrong with you, it was a result of the sin that was in your life. And so often in these cases, they would be excluded. They would be pushed away from community. Certain diseases like leprosy sent them away into leper colonies rather than being able to continue the relationships they had had in the past. That's what the Anawim dealt with. And as I'm imagining these words of Jesus in Matthew 5, this changes the way I see the poor in spirit. I want you to imagine with me the people who were on this hillside with Jesus. The blind, the crippled, the lame, the paralyzed, the demon-possessed. The disciples are there as well. Perhaps there's others who are healthy. But I have to believe this crowd that's there in chapter 4 follows him up the mountain. And this is the Anawim. I want you to imagine some characters in the gospel that I was imagining might be up on that hillside with him. People like them. For instance, there's a man in John 9 that I'm imagining up on that hillside. John chapter 9 is the story of a man who was blind from birth. And do you remember this story? The disciples come to Jesus and they say, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And I'm imagining that guy up on the hillside because Jesus quickly responds to them and says, okay, I know there's social consequences in our day. I know that you assume sin goes along with this kind of activity. It's involved in his life, him being blind. But I'm here to tell you, this sickness is not this, this. blindness is not because of anything that's been done. It's so that the glory can go to God. And so as I imagine the scene in Matthew 5, I imagine people like the man in John 9, up on that hillside ready to hear from Jesus, maybe for the first time beginning to see things they haven't been able to see before. It makes me smile when I think about them hearing these words. I think about another guy that comes across Jesus in Mark chapter 5. We know him as Legion which is an interesting name I'll get to in a moment. Jesus and his followers are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and they're they're going along, and they end up in a region known as the Gerasenes. And as they get off the boat in the Gerasenes, all of a sudden this man, a crazy-looking man, comes running toward Jesus and the disciples, and the disciples are afraid. What they come to find out is that this man is demon-possessed. And when Jesus asks him what his name was, do you remember what he says? He says, Legion for we are many. And if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will, right? Can you imagine? You're coming up to this place where the tombs are. He's got chains that he's broken apart. He's running towards you. And his response when you ask for his name is, Legion, for we are many. But Jesus sees this man. He's been ostracized by his community. They've chained him up in the tombs. And I imagine it got to a point where he could free himself and run back into the town, but he knew he wasn't wanted So why not just make a home of this place? The social consequences, again, of demon possession. And Jesus, I can imagine preaching to someone like Legion, perhaps. I'm imagining Legion on that that mountainside. It makes me smile to think that Jesus is speaking these words, not just to those who are here this morning, but He's speaking them to the man in John 9, and He's speaking these words to Legion, who for the first time may be able to sit in His right mind without what He's faced before. And then I imagine a woman. You remember this woman? Jesus is on his way to heal Jairus, his daughter, this important man. And in the, way, in, the, in, in the midst of this, someone touches the edge of his garment. This is in Mark chapter 5 as well. And, and he notices that some kind of power has gone out from him. And he asks, who is it that touched me? The disciples can't even imagine who it would have been. They're just getting shoved all over the place in this scene of chaos. But Jesus knows that something has happened. And finally, it becomes clear there's this woman who in this moment gets healed. She's been bleeding for 12 years. And you know the ostracization that would bring in her life? Because in that day and age, it would have meant that she was unclean. Unclean not just for a a week's period of time, but unclean for 12 years. That's the Anaheim church. And as I imagine this hillside, it's changing before my eyes because I've always heard the Sermon on the Mount, me, but I've never heard it to the group that Jesus is actually preaching to. These church are the poor in spirit. These are the Anaweem. But the Anaweem aren't just people who live during the time of Jesus or the time of exile. The truth is, every culture and every era has its Anaweem. There are weem in the crowd this morning. Maybe many of us have felt in moments of our lives as if we were the pitiful, as if no one would want us, as if we were the poor in some cases, as if we were those that were ostracized by something that's happened in our lives. We like to think of ourselves as winners and portray ourselves as such, but the truth is many of us don't feel like that all the time. We feel cast aside or left out, and in those moments, we can associate with the Anaheim. I remember one of my first experiences is at the Anawim. I was seven or eight years old in my church growing up. My dad was the preacher, and so Every time after church, the kids would gather around. We'd play a game of hide-and-seek in the church basement. There were all kinds of great hiding places, and as the preacher's kid, that was the benefit, as I knew him better than anyone else. I spent a lot of time in that building. And so it came time for hide-and-seek, and all the kids would gather around. We'd go find our places, and it was time to be found. And i got to tell you, that day, I was winning. <laughs> None of the kids found me that day. And then I came out to rejoice, and there was no one to rejoice with me. Kids were gone. And the adults were gone. That day I was left at church by my own parents. They should have known I'd be in the father's house, right? But they didn't find me. <clears throat> See, My parents had left me at the church building. And to this day they claim it was a communication error, right? I'm thinking, yeah, that communication error didn't happen with my brother though. It happened with me. That's an on weem moment. But that's not the most serious Anawim moment in my life. There have been other moments where I felt even more so, ostracized, left aside, like I wasn't good enough, I was worthless in some way. Rest assured, we have Anawim among us every Sunday when we gather in these doors. We just aren't always aware of it. In most churches around America this morning, the same story could be told. There's there's a couple that's been silently walking through a three-year journey of infertility. And they, they've prayed and they've, they've fasted and they've done everything they can imagine to have God hear their prayer and yet the journey continues. They feel as if they're not enough in some way. They wonder if it's something in their past that's bringing this to the forefront today. And they walk silently through it and they struggle and they wonder, am I seen by God? Does He hear my prayers? What is it that's standing in the way? And they've received all kinds of too painful advice from church people and loved ones and friends that try to give them the right home remedy. But no, that's not the problem. It's deeper. There's a 13 and 15-year-old brother and sister. His parents are walking through a divorce. And I'm just imagining them as their parents say, just put on your smile again today. Just try to act as if nothing's wrong as we walk through and sort through this ourselves. I wonder if the Anawim are still among us this morning there are those in the crowd who felt the sting of the unfaithfulness of a spouse. And in the midst of that, you know what it's like to be the on There's a teenager who does the best they can to try to find friends and find their place, and over and over again, it seems like they just can't find their place. And that's one thing at school, but it's an even more painful thing at church. It's on a wing. And there's a 43-year-old man who's Worked all of his life to get to the place he'd hoped he'd be able to provide for his family, but the job comes to an end and he doesn't know what's next. Or maybe it's the one who's in the job and it just feels like a dead end and he's wondering, am I making any difference in my life? Does anyone see me? Do I have any worth? It's on a wean church. And I can go on and on and I I imagine these people on the hillside with Jesus. I imagine the man from John 9, I imagine the woman from Mark 5, I imagine Legion who's sitting there in his right mind again, and I'm imagining the teenagers, and I'm imagining the the spouse who's just gotten the news. So I want you to hear these words again in Matthew 5 with those pictures in mind of exactly the people that Jesus is talking to. Jesus isn't talking to a faceless crowd. This is not just a statement you put on some kind of bookmark that you put in your Bible. No, these are words of comfort meant for a certain group of people. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And my response is, blessed? Blessed? Jesus, let me interrupt you and ask you, how is Legion blessed? Is he blessed because he's healed now? Because these people gathered on the hillside, finally are okay to come back in a community. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit who become rich, or those who finally get things together. No, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, that's his word. And I still want to say back to him, well, how is the couple who's struggling with three years of infertility after all they've done, and the abuse by doctors is how they receive it, even though those doctors are just trying to help. It's a struggle, and the advice. How in the world is blessed the language you give to that? And I'm thinking about those who didn't go into exile as slaves. I'm thinking about those who were left behind with no walls to protect them, with the best and brightest removed from their city as slaves to another place. How are those people blessed? How is the woman who bleeds blessed? How is the man who's born blind blessed? How is the spouse who's just received that news blessed? And actually, this word's stronger than blessed. The sense I would give to it is, congratulations. Congratulations if you're the poor in spirit. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. We don't use the word blessed around experiences like these, do we? We use the word blessed around fortunate occurrences that happen in our life. And we use that word often when things go well, don't we? Well, I just feel real blessed. i received some blessings from God. We throw around the word blessed, but never in this context. We tend to overuse the phrase, I think. And I find it a comfort that the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the most important and first sermon he preaches in the Gospel of Matthew, the first word isn't do, the first word isn't repent, the first word isn't correct, the first word isn't it's blessed. And I wonder if our world knew that, what it would change. If the first words out of Jesus' mouth weren't, you're not enough, or you've got to do this to be loved by me. No, the first word out of Jesus' mouth is blessed. It's counterintuitive. What makes the poor in spirit blessed? You see, we believe God blesses the wealthy. God blesses those who can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. God helps those who help themselves. He calls, though, the on ween blessed. He doesn't agree with his disciples when they assume they've done something wrong to bring on the sickness. He says just the opposite. The only entry fee in the kingdom of God is to admit our brokenness. That's the only thing that, that keeps us from our grace that God wants to give. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, it, it won't happen because you've lived a perfect life. It won't happen because you've earned enough religious tokens. It won't happen through anything on your own effort. The only way you enter into the kingdom and receive the kingdom is to say, God, I am the Anawi. I am the poor in spirit. I'm not enough. Hear me closely, church. We often misunderstand the Beatitudes. We think we're supposed to become poor in spirit in some way. If we could just attain poverty of spirit, then we'd be allowed into the kingdom of God. But that's a losing game because what happens when you finally become poor in spirit and you realize it? Then pride wells up, right? So if we make this list a list of things we have to become in order for God to love us, we miss the point of it altogether. That's a losing game. It's like humility. Once you become humble, what do you do next? You write the book. Here's how you become humble. That doesn't exactly work. And the poor in spirit's the same way. The goal is not to become poor in spirit, it's to acknowledge the fact that all of us are poor in spirit without even having to try. The truth is, you don't have to be poor in spirit. You just have to come to see yourself as what you already are not enough on your own, not righteous on your own account. But we spend our lives trying to cover up and prove our worth. I love the way that the message brings this translation in Matthew 5, verse 3. This is the way it's interpreted. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and His rule. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and His rule. And I love that image. Do any of you feel like you're at the end of your rope this morning? You feel like, you, God, I can't do anything to climb up that rope like I did in P.E. in the 10th grade. Anyone a nightmare moment for you too? That I can't do it on my own. I can't become what I need to become. Church, here's the good news of this morning. The Beatitudes are not prescriptions. God's not prescribing a way for you to become what you need to be so that you can enter into the kingdom of God. God is describing, he's proclaiming the truth, the good news. It's not do all this, here's the prescription, here's your, here's the doctor's notice, here's what you need to go and pick up from the pharmacy and take this. And No, he's describing, he's proclaiming on people who are poor in spirit. He's describing this to the Anawim in front of him. Congratulations. With less of you and you're not in the way with your pride, all of a sudden, so many more things become available. So what makes the Anawim blessed? Well, let me try to Describe it a couple of ways this morning. The Anawim are blessed because they see their condition clearly, more clearly than those who aren't in that place. The, the Anawim are blessed because they're at the end of their rope because they know it's not through their own effort. It's only through the grace of God that that can come. This is step one of recovery, right? There's so many connections between 12-step and, and what God's doing in the gospel. Step one is to admit that we're powerless to defeat whatever it is in our lives that's challenging us. It's to say, God, I'm at the end of my rope and I'm done climbing, and I'm going to need help on this journey. And that's what the poor in spirit being blessed looks like. I've titled this series Right Side Up because I trust these words in Matthew 5 we're going to journey through in the next couple of months. In fact, I want to challenge you this morning to begin to memorize these words in Matthew chapter 5. I would love for us as a congregation to to commit these to memory because I think these words are so important in the midst of the season we're in in this country. Often growing up, I'd hear people say that when we leave church, I heard this in prayers, right? God, as we enter, leave these doors and enter back into the real world, as if what we're doing here is some kind of fake reality, and when we leave these doors, we go out into the real world. But I would submit to you, church, it's just the opposite. The way that world out there, it's, it's flipped upside down. And, and, and the story we rehearse in here, the, the picture that we're reminded of every Sunday of God's future, this is the world right side up. And it's hard to believe when we exit these doors because for years we've been told, well, we just kind of do our religious rituals and then we enter back into the world to the real world where you have to deal with things in different ways. But these words in Matthew 5 are trying to flip that world upside down and say, the world says a certain kind of person is blessed, but Jesus proclaims a different reality. And are we going to come to trust the world, or are we going to come to trust Jesus when it comes to those who are blessed? It's Jesus. Every time we enter these doors, we are convincing ourselves all over again of the truth of the world right side up and not that crazy world out there. And that doesn't mean we exit these doors to proclaim how wrong everything is out there. No, the, the, the light's job is not to be mad at the darkness for not being light. No, the light's job is to light up the world. It's to show and, and develop and demonstrate to the world what the world right side up would look like. And so this is what we try to develop and practice in our families. This is what we practice students at our lunch tables where the Anawim show up. But it's not just in our high schools and middle schools, is it? We see them all over the place. And when we own it ourselves, it's amazing how we're able to walk in and walk beside the Anawim and pronounce the word of blessing in that place. Church, it's hard to believe, but these blessings that Jesus pronounces in Mark 5, this is the way the world actually is. And everything in our culture will push against this to say, no, you're only as much as you make. You're only as important as the job title in the office you have. You're only as important as the house and the car that you drive. You're only as important as the things that you can accumulate, but it's backwards. All of that is artificial. It's a veneer. And if you scratch it long enough, you begin to realize it's not really what it sets itself up to be. I need to be reminded of this church. It's so easy to fall back into it, the old point system. But to those of you this morning that know, yes, I'm the anawim. I'm the poor in spirit. I'm the ones Jesus is talking to you. Let me remind you again what Jesus says. Regardless of the message you will hear when you leave these doors, I want you to trust in the words that Jesus spoke centuries ago that are just as crazy now as they were then. Congratulations. If you're at the end of your rope, you're right where God can do something with you that he couldn't do before. that. You're blessed. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you so much for the gospel, the good news, that we sometimes get backwards and we sometimes get crazy and we think we're still trying to earn up enough points or become good enough. God, we are dropping that project now because we're coming to trust the words of Jesus. The kingdom of God is open to those that can admit it's not about us, God. It's not about what we can do. It's about what you're doing in our lives. And so God, this morning, we take step one together. We step out of that denial, God, of the fact that things are messed up in our lives. And we're not enough on our own. And we do feel left out and worthless so often. The only way we can find that identity, though, is not in the pursuits that so many of us have found ourselves caught up. And we trust, again, that the only place we can find our identity is in you. It's in Jesus Christ. It's through your Holy Spirit's work of transformation in our lives, we find life. So this morning, God, remind us, convince us again that these words of Jesus are still true this many years removed. God, I thank you for your kingdom. I thank you for this world that seems so upside down, but this morning we commit again to seeing it right side up. We want to live that out in front of our neighbors and our friends this week. May we be people of grace in a culture that knows nothing of it.